yeah, whatever. And then it is that me? It's cleaner. I'm the one that does that. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's both of us, but it is you. <laughs> that I just did it. <laughs> That's um, you doing an impression of you, but also me doing an impression of you doing an impression of Joe Pesci. <laughs> Wait, welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. <laughs> so we're season two, episode two, and it's called Honor. Yes. I did a lot of helmet work this episode. Yeah. Um, a lot of helmet work. That was my nickname in high school. That was when I got <laughs> I like it. Summer hits and summer misses. Okay, so we open on a trail next to a pond. It looks like a walking slash bike path, and it's swarming with cops and paramedics. A bike cop who has zero time to remove his helmet is debriefing <laughs> Benson and Stabler on the crime as they follow him to the scene. He tells them he found the victim, who was a woman, quote, moaning, half naked, bleeding from her chest in privates. She was super duper beat up. Um, she's still laying there 45 minutes after being found oh, yeah. by the cops. The paramedics were in rush hour, I guess. And I'm like, really? Don't ambulance lights mean fuck off and move? I know, but sometimes you just can't. It's like so thick that you just can't like, <laughs> that's my name in school. <laughs> uh, no, but like I've been in the middle of a pile of traffic and an ambulance came and you're just like, I pull over, I can't pull over any farther. You know, it's yeah. like just a hot mess and they just can't get through. Oh, We're talking about God. New York fucking city here. So it just sounds super awful to be laying there and like you can hear the siren and it's like, it's going to be a while. They're a block and a half away. Yeah, 45 minutes. That's fucking awful. That's yeah. awful. Yeah. All right. Deep stab wound, left chest. They get a piece of evidence from, I'm guessing, a forensics cop. He calls the crime, quote, a good old-fashioned stoning New York style. What the fuck? He hands Stabler an evidence bag with a rock the size of a baseball in it. He thinks that part happened after the stabbing and the rape. And I'm like, God, this attacker was doing too fucking much. Yeah. There's no ID on the Vic. The Vic is strapped to this board. The medics pick him up, and one guy just screams, let's get her out of here. <laughs> Olivia mentions that it seems like it's, quote, open season on women right now. And Stabler says, wilding is back in vogue. And Olivia says that she hates the term wilding. I think that the term wilding came from the Central Park Five incident. Mm -hmm. Um, It was in like 89 when 30 to 35 like young teens from Harlem like went out and kind of went nuts on like Central Park. And a bunch of groups were like committing crimes that night and like doing stuff. And it, mm -hmm. they called it wilding out. Yeah. And a woman, a white jogger got raped and and it became national news and five boys went to prison yeah. for a long time for it. And then we now know that they were wrongfully convicted. Committed. Convicted. Convict, yeah. There's a bunch of like uh, documentaries about it and stuff. Like When They See Us, I think is one, right? Mm -hmm. But basically they just like picked five boys and none of them knew each other. Like they they met each other while they were being like processed. They're like, oh. That's so bonkers. Yeah. So, but at the time that this episode came out, everybody still thought that th they were guilty and in jail. So she's like, this is like another. So they were in prison for over a decade. Longer. Yeah. I think. Hold on. That's no. what over a decade means. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Their convictions were vacated in like 2002, but I'm not sure. Okay. So, but when this episode came out, they were the Central Five thing. They were making a reference like, oh, great. There's a bunch of kids running around recreating this again. Yeah. You know. So then she gets in the ambulance. Benson rides with the Vic and Stabler stays back to cover the scene. Then we go to, oh my God, the opening credits. It took nothing and Jeffries is out and Cabot and Tutuola are oh fish in the opening. What does that mean? Oh fish. Oh fish. Official. What's 
Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I was like, oh, fish. What is it? Some kind of like, like fresh meat term? <laughs> I didn't understand what you meant. Like fresh fish? I was like... <laughs> But the shoulder-to-shoulder double door at the end, our favorite part of the opening, it's gone, you guys. In its place is our main cast, Benson, Stabler, Cabot, Toots, Munch, flanking Captain Cragen as he holds a binder, clearly something very important they're about to go over. The camera pans in really fast, and they're all like, okay, everybody quick look over your shoulder, glamour shot style. You're like, surprise the camera's there. And they all look. Just trying to do my job. What? Oh. (laughs) I wish they would have kept the door thing, but expanded the doors and added doves. (laughs) Right? It's like rose petals coming down from the ceiling. (laughs) Like a 90s R&B music video. Yeah, or like a soap opera. Everybody's wearing satin (laughs) button-up shirts. Oh, my God. There's a huge fan. (laughs) So they're in the squad room. Cragen wants info on the victim, like immediately, obviously. The woman, she's just Jane Doe in her 20s. She was raped and stabbed and beaten with stones and left for dead Uh, they don't have any clue who did it and who she is or anything um Mm -hmm. in the ambulance olivia heard her mumbling in what she thought was arabic or hebrew but nothing she could like make out so the new guy tutuola gets off the phone he was only on the phone for like 30 seconds no i counted oh you did he's yeah like while olivia is going on about this shit you see toots in the background sitting at his desk and he picks up a phone his mouth doesn't move at all and he hangs up after three seconds because (laughs) i went back twice and counted i'm like yeah that was only three seconds he delicately puts the phone on the hook like he's pouring tea out of it and he came out of that three seconds with this information that was the hospital they have post-op photos for us they pour four units into her it's touch and go she'll survive and i'm like holy shit that was the most efficient phone call that's ever been on television the emmy was on fucking adderall screaming into the phone (laughs) he's like post-op photos blood (laughs) she might die hang up when you said Emmy, I thought you were going to be like, the Emmy goes to the imaginary person on the other end of that phone for making the tiniest splash ever on SVU. Try In three seconds, I'm going to time you. Try to say, post off photos, four units, Okay, touch and go. Hold on, ready? All right, go. Hi, is this Officer Tutula? Because I have to tell you that <laughs> she's not. But I- <laughs> Don't Wait, even do say, hi, is this Officer? You just got to be like, I know, but I'm trying to... I'm trying- Blood die. See, I'm from the Midwest, so I would be like, hello? Like, oh, oh, hey, sorry. Hope you're not having lunch. <laughs> well, I'm just calling about that gal. That ga- Yeah, I'm calling about her. Oh, I know. I know. Such a shame. Anyway, calling from the hospital. So, no. Okay, let me do it again. Let me do it again. Ready? Yeah. Go. We have post-op photos for you. There, there's four units in her, and it's touching. You, <laughs> you took one second to breathe. <laughs> oh, shit. And that's where you made a mistake. While the phone was ringing, that person was on the other end going, <sighs> Okay. <laughs> And then the Emmy's boss is like, fucking Daniel, chill, chill. You have a problem. Cragen then asks Toots about the rape kit. And Tutuola has more information. Hair, semen, bruising, and blood from a freshly perforated hymen. I want to get to that in a second, though. Because Ice-T's face when he said that line was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah, it's like, strap in, bud. Yeah, it's like I've said just a tiny bird's nest full of words. And (laughs) I'm talking about somebody's freshly perforated hymen. Munch chimes in after the hymen info and he's just like a virgin dude there was this like weird pause where you think he's gonna say something else but he doesn't like what an odd time to chime in and just have that be the only thing you say and not follow it up with like i know about women's bodies you guys i've seen one or two in my day or whatever the fuck you know well you know he only he only marries hot chicks who are dumber than him 
Yeah. Okay, so Cragen sends Munch and Toots off to call every precinct, transit, and housing district to see if anyone has reported this person missing, who they still don't have an identity for. When he sent everybody off, he referred to it as, quote, pucker time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which I uh, was like, what does that mean? Um, He's like, get your buttholes ready, y'all, because this is going to be a rough one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even want to Google it because I feel like it's going to take me on a whole fucking, like... Yeah, you're going to go on butt stuff journeys <laughs> with that one. Oh, and so then he tells Benson and Stabler to go talk to the park precinct captain to see if there's any ongoing problems they should know about but he warns them and says the guy's a complete dick bag so be ready yeah so uh benson and stabler are back at the crime scene they're talking to the park captain he doesn't want to be talking to them because mm-hmm. he is a dick bag he says that the crime in central park is the lowest it's been in 30 years and that this is an anomaly and they want to know if there's been any like quote-unquote wolf pack behavior and then they made the reference again to the wildling the you know gone wildling or whatever the captain was like that was an anomaly too yeah and he says he's like there's no gangs in my park so he dips past Stabler. Finger in Olivia's face, by the way. Yeah. Not in my park. Uh, Stabler kind of steps in between him and the car and he like dips past Stabler and he opens the door and he's like, look, just call me. I've got people waiting. Yeah. He's not really like having any questions from Benson Stabler. What more important people do you have waiting for you besides the special victims unit that's handling this woman's case? In your park. Yeah. And then like the camera pans to Olivia and her like little season two spiky hair is kind of like fluttering in the wind. Oh, fucking babe. Benson and Stabler approach the guy I thought was a bike cop with a bike helmet, but it turns out he's a horse cop with a horse helmet (laughs) because now he's got a horse with him. He spills to them that the park captain isn't sharing shit because he's afraid that the Morris commish is going to come down on him. There's a pattern of rich kids on mountain bikes robbing and harassing people. This cop was just like, yeah, I'll tell you everything. What do you want to (laughs) know? The captain didn't see the pattern of these rich kids pulling shit until the day before. So now the cop tells them that the captain's trying to clean this shit up and not look like an incompetent dumbass with a job that he can't handle. Right. This officer who absolutely refuses to take off his helmet <laughs> tells them he had an encounter with the bored rich kid ringleader. It's like driving you yeah. insane how much this guy won't take off his helmet. He's just like walking around with his fucking helmet on though. Like every scene that he's in we're like we get it. Whatever vehicle you're on you need this helmet. What if you he need, needs yeah. both of his hands for evidence? He's got That's a- fine. There's a clip you hang it over your arm or I'm sure there's a spot on his cop belt that like holds his bike helmet or I'm sure if there's an accessory that he can add to his cop belt he's got it to clip his fucking bike helmet on. So we're at the apartment of Chris Lyons where well we can only assume that that Chris Lyons is the like shitty kid because they don't say that but you just know that yeah so Chris Lyons is the teen ringleader Benson and Stabler are at the front door of his apartment and the dad answers the dad says what now like he he's always getting in trouble and they ask where Chris is and he says if you want to talk to Chris talk to our attorney and Olivia says you want to do this the easy way or the or your way and the dad says we'll meet you at our lawyer's office you just so you just like know this kid's gonna be a fucking little prick i like how you said do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way first because i'm like it just shot me right back to my teenage years right yeah that was my dad's line want to do this the easy way or the hard way i'm like is he threatening to hit me (laughs) (laughs) turns out yeah he was Okay, so then they're at the lawyer's office. This fucking kid is simultaneously Vanilla Ice and the lead singer from Sum 41. Yep. Oh my God, yes. But like up the cringiness by like 150%. I was embarrassed every time this guy opened his mouth. Oh, the hair, you're right. Yeah. He's basically like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit, but I know I'm never going to get in trouble for anything. Also, my friends and I didn't do shit to that lady. Like he's such a fucking cock. Yeah, he's like, we like to harass women, but not like that. And you're like, okay. Yeah. Like what did his dad say that he was up all night? Yeah, his dad was 
was like, he was on the computer all night and fucking little twat. He's like, yeah, it was dot common. Yeah, and I'm like, nobody ever says dot coming. I'm like, he's the Gretchen Wieners of friends. <laughs> Quit trying to make dot coming happen, you fucking toolbox. <laughs> yeah, no, I never said that. Nobody ever said that. They're constantly trying to come up with like hip internet terms on the early seasons of SVU. Mm -hmm. And we're like, you don't have to do that, you guys. Like, you can say the same you thing. You can say internet, yeah. Somebody thought of the term dot-coming in the writer's room, they fucking high-fived each other. <laughs> so this kid also is supposed to be fucking 15, but he's like 32. Like, he has a few kids. Oh, 100%, yeah. He doesn't pay child support. He got into Bitcoin a little bit. Well, hey, guy, why don't, you, why don't you sell your boat? Wait, what? <laughs> why don't you sell your boat? I'm gonna leave that in like it makes sense. <laughs> hey, guy, why don't you sell your boat? So yeah, dude was dot coming from 1 a.m. till 9 a.m. Yes, he was soupsbusy.com. Yeah, and then Benson pulled Stabler aside and was like, the lab called and it's not what we thought. Mm -hmm. So now they're at the Emmy mm -hmm. office. The attacker's DNA was inside her and she was dumped after she was stabbed. The hospital said that she lost nearly half of her blood volume and they didn't find anywhere near that number at the crime scene. So that's how they know mm -hmm. that she was dumped. And there was like white cotton fibers yeah. all over her and she was she wasn't wearing any pants but she was wearing a bloody sweater from Hanford University yeah so that's their next lead to IDing her yeah Benson Stabler at the Hanford University admissions office they're going through pictures of women who are attending Hanford they find someone who looks like her and her name is Nafisa Amir she's 22 in school for journalism she's from Afghanistan and her emergency contact is Dayud Tarsi in the East Village and they send Munch a fax of her ID so then Munch and Toots are at the door of Dayud Tarsi. So this dude answers. He's got a bandaged, fresh cut on his forehead. Also a t-shirt that says, I did it in all caps. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> That's like... No, he didn't. So this guy who says he's not Dayud Tarsi says Dayud doesn't live there anymore and his name is David Hamoud. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any photo ID. He says he moved in the week prior and tells them he got the cut from trying to fix his sink himself. And he squeezes in between them, which I'm like, what are you doing? Because the hallway was really wide and he could have just walked around that. yeah it would have been like two steps they were standing six inches apart from each other yeah. and he's like uh, like like has to go shoulder first <laughs> to get between them and it's like just walk around yeah but he rushes off because he says he's got a meeting and he's like you guys can come over later if you want so benson and stabler are at the library talking to an itty bitty curly haired sweater under blazer tiny rimmed glasses wearing professor mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah okay great <laughs> Benson is showing her a photo of Nafisa in the hospital, like a graphic photo. And the woman goes, oh, God. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the professor <laughs> the professor says Nafisa missed class that morning and she had been in a couple of her other classes and had never missed one before. Uh, they talked a lot about the differences between Afghanistan and the United States, free press, women and shit. So the professor then tells them that Nafisa's parents must also be in the States because it's not legal for her to leave the country alone as a woman. Or even her house. Yeah. So she, she maybe snuck out or her parents were here. Yeah. This professor had quite a bit to say about Afghanistan and the culture mm -hmm. and Nafisa seemed to want to be part of something else. She was kind of fighting against where she came from or what she came yeah. from. Yeah. Professor mentions that she had a best friend named Annette Fleming and that they were joined at the hip. Oh my God. There was like this guy in the background that like he was he was basically he had a book in his hand walking behind the scene. You could tell he was desperately trying not to look at the camera. <laughs> like he just wanted to shoot one little look. And he probably did like four times and they were like, if you do it one more time, you're out of here. <laughs> 
So they're off to talk to Annette. She's adorable. She kind of looks like if a Disney princess came to life and then went to Old Navy. <laughs> she does. Yeah. She's pretty upset. And she said that Nafisa had been loving life, you know, getting her shit. Benson asked if Nafisa had a boyfriend. And Annette told her that she didn't talk about anything like that, probably to protect herself. Her dad is an Afghan diplomat and is extremely strict. Nafisa would always call him a control freak. And another thing Annette said was that Nafisa would wear her robes when she left the house and would change at school. And I think she means burqa. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I assume they're talking about that, but it's like you never, I don't know. I think. You know? It is a burqa. Like when okay. it covers. Okay. Anyway, I think she means burqa. She just says she wears the robes, obviously, to like, I don't know. You think you think if they were best friends, she'd be like, what's that called? What's that thing that you're wearing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Annette says Nafisa was getting help from Professor Husseini. And I'm like, who's that? We find out later. Yeah. He was helping her to adjust to like American life and mm -hmm. and adjust to like, you know, change like living you know. in America. Yeah. That's James Brown. But she she kept the clothes in her locker. That's Apollo Creed's entry to fight Ivan Drago in the beginning of Rocky IV. I don't know if anybody knows this, but Tasha is like obsessed with all the Rocky movies. Any single problem that she's ever had in life can be somehow impressively compared to and contrasted with a Rocky scene. Because it movie. holds every... It's basically... Like, you know how people use the Bible as like a moral compass? <laughs> It's like that. Yeah. Just go back. Every time you have something really hard happen in life, just come ask me. Just just send me. Just She'll tell you. She'll tell DM you. DM me real quick and I'll to. let you know which scene of which Rocky movie that you need to get your eyes wrapped on to get through your tough time. Oh, my God. Anybody who's listening, actually do this. <laughs> I want to see. I, I see what she says because th this is just. It'll never be Rocky five, you guys. It won't. <laughs> I don't know what that means is the thing. Anybody so, who does gosh, will be don't... like, no shit. No shit. Anyways, they're at Nafisa's locker. They're, I I'm seriously challenging you, you people like DM SVU pod on Instagram because I need to like hear these responses. No, it's going to happen because yeah. I mean, I don't care. Yeah, I, for sure. Do it because I'm not kidding. Like I'm not either. And I, I, I I'm always impressed when you do this. It's and I almost never know embarrassing, but I have gotten through some of the hardest times of my life by like getting myself fucking geared up by a monologue from Sylvester Stallone in mm -hmm. any number of the Rocky movies. Yeah. After that breakup with your shit fuck ex-boyfriend. What now? Remember that huge like painting you made? Oh, you mean the that one that's hanging like... in my basement over here? <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> okay. Anyways, yeah. they're at Nafisa's locker. They're going through her backpack and things. And they find a day planner. And it has a pic of a dude in it. Mm. And they're like, maybe it's her boyfriend. Yeah. They also find her addresses. Yes. Benson and Stabler are at the apartment of Saleh and Aziza Amir. I'm not sure if I'm saying those names right. But I was like double surprised that they put the woman's name in this. Oh, really? Especially in this episode. First of all, they never put the wife's name on anything, in, at least in the last season. Oh, because they yeah, they gave her a name. But she becomes an integral character. Like she becomes very very important to the story yeah right so they um, probably were like oh i guess we'll give this one a name take yeah. out two next episode <laughs> <laughs> we gotta we gotta even this out uh so nafisa's father confirms that the picture is of their daughter nafisa mm -hmm. they inform her she is in intensive care and the dad asks if she's dead they tell her no and he goes off about how nafisa didn't know her quote-unquote place and how she chose to do a man's work and turned her back on the, the traditions of her family yeah. he says they still have a son jaleel but that nafisa is dead to them olivia and the mom shoot each other this look right stable tells him that his daughter was beaten and raped and the dad said it's Xena, which I don't... It's punishment for having sex with a dude who's not her husband. Yeah, oh, yeah. She slept with a man who is not her husband. That's what he says. We're not quite sure what he's referencing. Like, when I first heard him say that, I'm like, is he talking about the fact that she was raped? Which could be... 
Okay, Stabler shows him the picture of the dude that was in Nafisa's day planner. The dad says he doesn't know who he is. And Jaleel isn't at home. And the dad says that him and his wife are suffering agony about the life that Nafisa chose and for them to leave them to grieve, which I was like, okay. Anyway, this is really tough because like as people that come from the culture that we come from, this is like mind blowing, you know? And I just don't love this representation of a culture because I feel like it's fragmented and irresponsible. There's not a whole lot Mm -hmm. of, there's not enough backstory given. Not that you can sit and give all of that backstory, but I feel like this wouldn't fly today. You know, this level of representation. It's just that this is being thrown out to a middle America in the early 2000s who is already looking at our differences through an ignorant lens. I'm going to get into all this stuff in the chaser. Uh, There's like, it's a lot of stuff, but like, please know that we are, we are aware of our level of ignorance, like in this subject. Well, I'm not out necessarily. No, there is a level, I guarantee there's a level of ignorance that we have because. Oh, I was going to say, I I might not even be aware of how ignorant I am on it. It's how I was saying it. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's like, I might not even know that I'm saying shit that I, you know. So they're in the precinct. The team is discussing handling this shit delicately moving forward because of dad's association with being a diplomat and shit. Mm-hmm. Munch and Tutuola see the picture that Benson and Stabler found in the backpack of the dude. And they're like, hey, it's that guy from the apartment that said he'd never heard of her. It's mm-hmm. David Hamoud. They're going to go pick him up. So Benson, Stabler, Munch, and Toots basically surround David's building and watch him coming back from getting groceries. He sees Tutuola's early years ponytail and takes off and they all chase him down, he, hop in cars. He's the colonial pony, and he's like, as a cop for sure. <laughs> you call it a what? Colonial pony, like a colonial pony. Those little ponies. <laughs> I thought you were missing. Colony pony. <laughs> you might as well have a blue, like like a ribbon in it or something, <laughs> like a little, like a little flute. <laughs> And he goes, to, but he like, he's like hauling ass behind this guy and Toots just dives over like he belly flops him he from behind fucking starfish dives over the guy. So what he did actually off camera, there was a trampoline <laughs> and he took a run, made a big jump, fucking did like a bear hug on the guy's back. I think it was just a mannequin of Tutuola that they had put a little George Washington wig on and <laughs> threw it on the guy. <laughs> it looked like Toots didn't have any fucking control of his body just like flopping on top of him <laughs> or there was a cliff or something he jumped off of nearby and and tackled him Yahoo! <laughs> what is that for fucking goofy? <laughs> regardless staves is impressed with tutuola <laughs> yes he's like nice tackle and i'm like oh it was a cute little moment that they had with each yeah. other anyways the guy's like you won't ever find her i'll never tell you where she is and stabes is like we already did i'm like duh you dummy turns out the dude is deud tarsi who they were originally mm-hmm. looking for he's spilling to benson and stabler in an interrogation room he and nafisa were a couple he loves her they got in a fight he said that he hates that she acts like she comes from some primitive tribe these are his words that her dad hates not having control of quote unquote his women yeah he doesn't well he said that he came in the, to the u.s in 88 he's got no family and he got his citizenship in 93 he also has an import export business and craigan wants to keep all of this out of the press for now mm-hmm. he gets upset and he's like i'm responsible for this right and he said they got into an argument and she left and he shouldn't have let her go and he said her dad already won as in his twisted ideas of honor are his quotes right she said nafisa's dad got revenge on her because he didn't want to get a reputation of letting his women quote do what they please yeah so he says he loves her and wanted to marry her and he's like i overreacted and i dared her to leave 
not thinking she would. So at the end of this, after he's like going on and he says he's responsible for it, I'm like, that's going to come back to bite him. Okay. Mm -hmm. I hear it and it doesn't sound like he did it, but it sounds like he's blaming himself for what happened. Other side of the glass. Other side of the, I was going to say the classic other side of the glass. Craig tells Munch to find someone who heard that argument and he'll call the beautiful ADA Cabot for warrants. Miss, I hold mimosa glasses weird. <laughs> So they're outside of Daoud's apartment. Munch and Toots are talking to a New Yorker who's taking his trash out and won't stop for two fucking seconds to talk to the police. He's really busy with this trash. Yeah. He's got all these trash. He's got all these bags. He's got two detectives wanting to talk to him about a horrific crime, but he's like, hang on. Yeah, I'll talk to you, but I'm not stopping with my trash. Uh, I got to get finished up with these garbage bags because the trash trucks are coming. And then once I put them over here, I got to start over and put them back. They're leaning against this brick wall. You think they can just sit here like this? We're in New York. God damn it. The whole city will come crumbling down. God, we're really trying to make this the- trash moment happen. I know. <laughs> So this guy says he heard the argument, but it wasn't in English. And before the screaming, he heard her call Diuda control freak mm. and something about her father. Yeah. After the argument, he hears the door slam and only one of them stomped out the stairs. And he knows that it was only one because a minute later, somebody turned the TV on. Yeah. The, the person who didn't leave turned the TV on. So Benson and Stabler are going through Nafisa and Dayud's apartment. And a forensic dude finds a, a bloody sheet in the laundry. Mm-hmm. Benson, Stabler, and Craig is office with ADA Cabot. Stabler says that the blood is hers and the semen is Diude's. Yeah. But the prints aren't either of theirs. The prints off the rock. Mm-hmm. But there's something weird with the blood so they're retesting. Yeah. And Cabot's like NBD, her blood, his semen, easy. Yeah. Diude is being arraigned in court on one count of attempted murder and one count of rape. He pleads not guilty. Cabot doesn't want any bail. Diude's lawyer is like, he's never been in trouble. He's a respected member of the community. He has an import-export business. And then the judge was like, well, let's make sure he doesn't export himself up out of here no bail <laughs> i know i was like I, good one that was a good one also dayud's lawyer tells cabot that dayud wants to take a lie detector test even though the lawyer doesn't want him to and cabot's like cool our examiner and he's like okay yeah i feel like his willingness to say something yeah to take a lie detector says a lot even though lie detectors like don't mean shit yeah but how often does a guilty person beg for a lie detector right you know except for yeah. like a complete sociopath it doesn't hurt is the thing. So cut yeah. to Dayud getting lie detected. Cabot and Craigan are on the other side of the glass. I gotta stop oh, acting what? like that's a big deal because this is like every other scene in this fucking show. I want Dan Florek to write an autobiography called <laughs> The Other Side of the Glass. <laughs> Cabot tells him that Nafisa's parents were at the arraignment. And I'm like, hmm, I thought they didn't care. Benson and Stabler meet up with Cabot and Craigan after the test. Dayud passed it. Stabler says he wouldn't be the first one to fool the box. That's what she said. <laughs> Cabot's worried. Thanks for laughing at that. Yeah, no, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Cabot's worried because if he can fool the box, he can fool a jury. And Cabot yeah. goes, maybe he's telling the truth. And they're all wondering who else would know about Dayud proposing to Nafisa and their relationship since Nafisa didn't even tell her best friend about him. Benson and Stabler are going to go talk to that professor Annette had told them about. Professor Husseini. Okay, yeah. So back to Hartford you. Benson and Stabler are doing a walk and talk with Dr. Husseini. So he comes from the Middle East and he's saying a lot of people from the area come to him um, for help with like transitioning. And he said it's hard for men 
men, but it's even harder for women because under the Taliban regime, they are tempted by all of the things that they can do in the U.S. that they couldn't do there. Yeah. Like leaving the house or going to school or having a job. Right. These are the things that he's saying. He said Nafisa wanted to be like more of a modern woman, quote unquote, but had to leave her home in order to do that. He also says that Afghan diplomats were rollovers from the last form of leadership in Afghanistan. Stabler's like, is there any reason why she would want to hide from her family? And the professor said it was like because of the Taliban regime's control over women, she would have been murdered for much, much less. And just because her father doesn't wear Taliban colors doesn't mean that he's not with them. Yeah. He said if her dad is so intensely strict, he might be a Taliban mole. Like that is straight. And this is where I'm going, ooh, this is a little irresponsible because yeah. it's like, hey, white Idaho, aren't you scared? Isn't this scary? Different people, yeah. you know? So Cabot's coming in hot to a meeting room in the prison with Dayud and his lawyer. She says that even though he passed the lie detector, his confession will be enough. And Dayud's like, my what? And she's like, he told Benson and Stabler that I am responsible for this. And I'm like, duh, he meant he feels responsible. Please don't play with semantics, ADA Cabot, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I respect her in a lot of ways, but I think this is like, you know what he meant. Right. And so then Dayud like goes to another place mentally and he reminisces about how they met as he looks longingly through the bars. <laughs> Dude, when he like gets up angrily and I was like, he's not going to that window. <laughs> and he did. He's <laughs> like, ah, young love. <laughs> I was just like. <laughs> like my dad at the end of Cool Runnings at the movie theater. <laughs> Standing O all around. You're like, Dan, sit down. You're the only one. Oh my God. How old was I? How old were we when Cool Runnings came out? I got to Google. Hit it up. I've been known to Google a thing or two. Let's see. On um, Cool Runnings. I couldn't have been more than like 11. Was it 92? 93? 93. <gasps> oh. oh my God. Nice. I was younger than 11. How old? Oh, I forgot about John Candy. I was 10. Oh, I remember. I know where I was when I learned he died. It was in It was right grade. after. Um, Eastward Ho or whatever, right? Forward Ho? So my dad took my brothers and me to see Cool Runnings in the theater. And you know at the end, when they crash their bobsled, and then they mm -hmm. all pick it up and they walk it to the end together, there's this slow clap that happens. Mm -hmm. It's like us and maybe 15 other people in the theater, and my fucking dad just gets up. <laughs> slow claps <laughs> along with the people that are paid to be extras in this dramatic portion of this movie and the guy in front of us I wish I could just turn a visual on for you because this guy in front of us turned like looked over his shoulder <laughs> and looked at my dad was like no way just <laughs> furrowed brow yet eyes bigger than they've ever been I'm sure <laughs> and my little brother and I are both just like oh my fucking god dad so every time anything awesome happens or like anything moving happens happens and we're with my dad we'll just start slow clapping and be like right dad <laughs> anyway oh my god the reasons why the lights on the stairs in movie theaters are just a little bit brighter in wisconsin is because my dad doesn't have a fucking chill button and he is like i gotta be the first one in and out and he like fell down the stairs and kind of fucked his leg up while we were watching a movie because he had to, he was like pushing by everybody to be out first and he was like i'm gonna what the shit rick oh my god they're turned up a little bit more because of him because we would go to the movie theater and be like see that <laughs> see that that's your dad yeah we're like yeah he also one time snuck me in i'm not gonna lie he snuck us both in a fucking <laughs> foot long subway oh my god our own foot long my gigantic 90s clothes were strictly for that purpose like oh my god 
I used to pop popcorn and put them in pillowcases because so it couldn't hear it crumble, but I've never fucking snuck an actual foot-long sub. I have eaten a foot-long meatball sub and a 20-liter of Sprite. 20 liter is that what it is 20 ounce is it 20 ounce 20 liter 20 liters it would be like a me-sized bottle (laughs) a fucking sprite at my hometown movie theater and i'd be stoned too so i would feel super paranoid to be like i smell like meatballs (laughs) (laughs) and probably make really weird eye contact with the lady behind the counter like do you want anything Mm -mm, mm -mm. (laughs) so So he's basically telling the story of forbidden love. He's still longingly looking out the window. She didn't want her dad to know. And he then told Cabot that her dad had promised her to the son of a government minister. So her going against that was a slap in the face of her father. So the night of the attack, Dayud had asked Nafisa to marry him. She said yes, and he kind of pressed her, and they had sex. She was upset that he had pressured her, and they got into this big fight. So like she had this post-coital guilt. Then they got in this big fight, and she said he was trying to dominate her, and she left and Cabot's like why all the lies and he points to the cut on his head that he had told Munch and Tutuola was from fixing the sink and said Mm. see this it's from a cop and I'm like what cop whoa and he said a cop came to the door looking for Nafisa he had a gold badge I swear I thought he was gonna say he had a helmet on (laughs) I swear (laughs) it was gonna come back to this there had to be an explanation for why this guy would not take off his fucking helmets it wasn't the helmet cop so Munch and Tutuola met up with a cop who tuned up Dayud because he had left his business card. Mm-hmm. So he's what they would call plain clothes, but this guy is dressed like he's unloading cocaine bales off George Young's single engine Sestin in the 70s. Yes. Whoa, black bitty, bam, lamb. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that movie. Um, yeah. He also looks like he's wearing one of those jackets that you'd see George Costanza wear in every single episode of Seinfeld. Oh, like a like... members only jacket. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're like, tell us what's up, man. You weren't on the clock. Like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing this kind of shit. And the dude is moonlighting at some private security company. He says Nafisa's dad called wanting them to find her. And he got as far as the boyfriend and Dayud gave him the same spiel that he gave the detectives, like that I don't know her. So the dummy cop's like, I could see her photo in the apartment right behind him. So then he like tunes him up for it. Dude says he can just kill him because he'll never tell him shit. The cops stake the place out for two nights, but he never saw her. Yeah, he sucks. This guy sucks. Yeah, he's a fucking chotch. He's like, what, you never tuned anybody up on the job? Stupid, I hated him. Yeah, and Munch is like, you're a dork, and Toots is like, (laughs) (laughs) Not him at all. (laughs) So, we're at the squad room, right? Yeah. Munch said the lab results came back and they have a problem. There were two types of DNA on the stones. One was Nafisa's and the other was not Dayud's. They retested Mm -hmm. the blood because both DNA had similar characteristics. Nafisa and her murder are related. Okay. So Nafisa's father has diplomatic immunity, but Nafisa's brother Jaleel's immunity expired the day he turned 21. And then Olivia answers a phone call. Nafisa passed away. Mm. Benson and Staler are outside of Nafisa's parents' building talking to the doorman. I think casting requirements for doormen of SVU are stocky, senior, must be adorable, and have an endearing accent. (laughs) And he was bringing the shit out of the cutest little doorman outfit. 
<laughs> he tells the detectives that Nafisa came home that night and she tried to run past him. He's like, I didn't know it was Nafisa. She wasn't wearing the getup. He didn't see her leave, but his shift ended at 11. Jaleel left at some point, though. The doorman does not like Jaleel. Yeah. He calls, orders me to bring up the big shopping cart upstairs. So they ask if he did. And he's like, you couldn't? This guy hasn't tipped me in four years. I told him I couldn't leave the desk. Come get it yourself. Mm. Yeah. He was so satisfied with himself when he said that. <laughs> it was like the best day of his life. Yeah, he like suck off for himself. Yeah. He never does. He just has to stay quiet, open the door, close the door, seethe inside under his little pillbox hat. <laughs> You're thinking of like an elevator hotel guy. I am. I forgot <laughs> what his outfit looked like. I just remember it was adorable. <laughs> he says Jaleel didn't bring the cart through the front though, and he probably took it through the garage to his car. Now Benson and Stabler are up talking to Nafisa's dad, and he is hot. Mm -hmm. I told you to leave us alone. He was just barking at these guys. Mm -hmm. Olivia respectfully says, basically, hey, guy, your daughter's dead and you don't seem to care. And it escalates very quickly when they tell him about the shit that the doorman said. Olivia asks if he watched his son put the knife through her heart and he goes, she was a whore like you. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he gets like kind of in her face a little bit. Ugh. And then Stabler kind of like pulls him back. Yeah. Yeah. And then Nafisa's mom comes out and she's so upset and she's like, she was your daughter. And she tells them, she like blurts out that Jaleel is on his way home to Afghanistan and the dad barks at her in Farsi and says his son is protected by the Vienna Convention and arresting him would be breaking international law. Mm -hmm. And they're like, nope, he's 21 and he is no longer covered. He's done. Yeah. So fast forward to Munch and Toots and they're on the airplane looking for Jaleel. They walk up to a guy and they say, Jaleel and and this fucking guy stands up with a fucking smile on his face. And he's like, I'm proud I killed her. She deserved to die. I was like, what? Yeah. And they cuff him while he goes on about yeah. how his dad will have him on the next flight. He believes that he has immunity as well. Yeah. At this point in the episode, I like kind of didn't see that coming. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Real quick little Craig and Cabot walk and talk. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'll need Munch for the trial. And I'm like, see, he's valuable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's expecting like- I'm going to spend this entire season convincing you that Munch is great. Okay, okay, okay. I've done a full 180. It's going to take you 20 years. <laughs> so, Cabot is expecting a lot of like blowback um, because Jamil is a diplomat's son. Jaleel and a lot of blowback. That was my nickname in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So they, they go into the office of the commissioner and he wants to know, he's like, why the fuck are you fucking with a diplomat's son? Craigan mm -hmm. kind of steps up because he's like, the commissioner is giving like Cabot shit. He's like, uh, no, we went looking for his son, but should have arrested Nafisa's dad as an accomplice to his daughter's murder. Yeah. So the dad filed a formal complaint about his mistreatment by the NYPD and the feds are fucking eating it up mm -hmm. and Cabot is a badass Grinch because her balls grew three sizes that day <laughs> she does not back down from this dude at all and says that they have a solid case and they're sticking to it regardless yep they're gonna go to court unless Jaleel pleads out and the what's his nuts the commission is like I suggest you reconsider your position and she is fucking hard and she's like why would I want to do that and he goes to save your own skin and he walks out and I'm like was that a threat yeah and like so here's the part that I was a little nervous about because it could ruin her career. There was like this pan to Craigan's face and I felt like he looked a little worried too. Like, what is she mm. going to do? You know? Mm -hmm. Remember when they had that like mimosa and she like drank it weird? Yeah, you bring that up a lot. I, it was so <laughs> weird to me. And she was like, why would I ruin stuff with you? I'm going to stand on your shoulders for constituents, yeah, you know? Right. So, no, she's quickly becoming like 
a part of the familial yeah. group. They're going to teach her how to feel, basically. <laughs> so they're in the squad room. Stabler is on the computer typing one finger at a time like he's my fucking grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I can, that was way funnier. <laughs> well, I can only assume he in three seconds he'll get like Irish Catholic angry and throw the keyboard. Rest in peace. <laughs> um, Craigan walks up and wants the info on what happened with Nafisa's dad. Stabler is like, hold on a second. I'm dot coming. <laughs> and Craigan is like, bitch, move. Even Olivia is like, okay, what is happening? And then I said, mm-hmm. Tasha, help me out on this part because like, there was like a whole bunch of shit that I didn't understand. Oh, sure. So Craigan's pretty short with Stabler, like you said, but he's really strong stressed out about the dep commish okay mm-hmm. the deputy commissioner yeah i got it in case yeah. you didn't yeah okay and he says salaya amir told the state department that we violated article 30 of the vienna convention because you grilled him about his son mm-hmm. stabler says in afghanistan jaleel would do three months in prison and get a hero's welcome home mm-hmm. and craigan says this is the afghanis playing hardball all of that seems problematic but also because like i don't know anything about any of it yeah there is i mean i'm gonna talk about some of this stuff in my chaser just as far as like what honor killings are and the laws surrounding them but um or that were that did that had mm. um but really they're they're trying to go over the heads of the nypd yeah. they're trying to go over the svu's heads and be like you violated the vienna convention okay so the vienna convention is an international agreement regulating treaties between states known as the treaty on treaties it establishes comprehensive rules procedures and guidelines for how treaties are defined drafted amended interpreted and generally operated Okay, cool. So it goes above and beyond the law of our land. Yeah. Because it can it can fuck up international relationships. They're in the chambers of Judge Alan Ridenor. I don't know how to say it, but I fucking, I love this judge. There's like two or three episodes in the first season that we encountered him and he's great. I was really mesmerized this episode by his mustache and how mm-hmm. he could enter witness protection, shave it off and not even have to move to Arizona. It's a personality in itself. Dude, facial hair to me on men is like Superman taking off his glasses or putting them on. I'm like, hello? <laughs> <laughs> so Cabot and Jaleel's lawyer are in his office. The lawyer is like, they didn't Mirandize my client. So yeah, the, the lawyer's trying to say that he wasn't Mirandized because he made this confession. He just blurted it out. Before, yeah. He blurted it out before, quote unquote, knowing what his rights were. Yeah. So he's saying he wasn't properly Mirandized. So then Cabot just calls it an excited utterance because it was something that was said prior to them even being able to Mirandize him. So they're splitting fucking hairs. Here's the thing that's weird to me is because never once in history has being like ignorant of the law mean that the law doesn't still apply, right? So I couldn't figure out why like... Yeah, but I'm sure there's like all kinds yeah. of tiny itty bitty little loopholes Yeah, that if you have a good attorney then they're going to find all that yeah, shit. Yeah, that's true. So, because this is the first time I'd ever heard of an excited yeah, utterance. me too. When they were writing for this show, like early on, I bet they had like a law book. What would that be called? I don't know, just like a book of things that lawyers book use. Of law. And they would open it up and be like, ooh, <laughs> Excited utterance. I can write a whole story around that. Now the lawyer is changing the plea to not guilty by reason of mental defect. 
Mm-hmm. Because they're they're saying he didn't realize that killing his sister was wrong mm-hmm. because of like cultural stuff. Yeah. Okay. The judge doesn't want to deal with an appeal if he ignores it, so he's having Jaleel examined by a psychiatrist. So they're at Rikers Island. Skoda's there talking to Jaleel. Yes, bitch. Jaleel isn't as pumped about killing Nafisa at this point. So he's had nightmares since he was eight because his dad made him watch his grandpa. This is trigger. Yeah. His dad made him watch his grandpa slit his aunt's throat. Mm-hmm. Skoda, so he starts hearing this story from Jaleel at Rikers. Mm -hmm. And we're all like, holy shit. Like, you saw this fucked up thing when you were eight. And then it cuts to Skoda in Cabot's office, and he's filling her in on the story. So Jaleel's aunt cheated on her husband, and that's what got her killed. So although it seems super black and white, Jaleel being taught this his whole life makes it kind of muddy for him. He was doing what he was taught in the name of honor and manhood and whatever, but Skoda could tell he was fucked up over it. So jury selection is going to be crucial here to unmuddy the waters on whether Jaleel knew what he was doing was wrong or not. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like, ooh, Cabot and Jaleel's lawyer are at jury selection. And after this juror gets excused by the defense, Cabot asks to approach the bench. And she's pissed because this generic white dad lawyer is excusing strictly women or Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And she threatens to ask for a Batson hearing. It's basically a challenge that the jury pool is built on um, discriminating factors. Mm -hmm. And and Cabot swangs her dick and the judge is like, hell yeah, bitch. You don't want a Batson <laughs> hearing in this court. Yep. Munch is on the stand. Munch said that before they could read Jaleel his Miranda rights, you can see that Nafisa's parents are in the courtroom. His exact words were, I'm proud of killing her. She deserved to die. Yeah. And then when the defense cross-examines him, he's just basically trying to guide the testimony to push that Jaleel is not sane. Yeah. And then he like feels no remorse. Mm-hmm. He was proud and seemed glad to see Munch on the plane. Mm-hmm. Dude is going like like his lawyers are going like full force on the insanity part yeah that a sane person would wouldn't smile and say he was proud of what he did right but then cabot jumps in saying that it's an objection because munch isn't a psychotherapist and then defense withdraws the question i roll so the lawyer asks munch how many people have you arrested in your career and then munch is like "Eh, probably going like 100 and the lawyer says how many people have you arrested that smiled and were happy they killed somebody and munch says one and that person is jaleel okay so scott is on the stand being examined by Cabot about his evaluation of Jaleel. His little eval was that he had severe trauma, delusional thinking, night terrors, vivid Mm -hmm. dreams, but it would not prevent him from knowing right from wrong. She's done and the defense attorney gets up and poses a hypothetical. What if somebody breaks into my house and I shoot them? Morally, I know it's wrong, but I'm defending my family and keeping them safe. And the prosecution's like, what the fuck? We're not arguing self-defense. Yeah. But the defense is like, Jaleel believed the actions of his sister could harm himself and his family. Mm-hmm. And Skoda reluctantly admits that that is possible. Okay, next up is Professor Husseini. He says that in Deuteronomy, it says that if unmarried people sleep together, they should both be stoned to death. The Quran is about families and that everyone is equal and the family's honor determines their social status. He says, although it's true that women in these circumstances could fear for their lives, there are countries actively trying to put honor killings in the same category as regular killings, quote unquote. So then this bobblehead of a defense attorney gets up and grills the professor about honor killings, noting that three out of four killings 
killings on the Gaza Strip the year prior were honor killings. And if a family loses their honor, men can lose their jobs, get ridiculed, children become outcasts until their honor is restored. And he asks, isn't that true that in the ancient belief, the more brutal the killing, the more honor it's worth? Mm. So he's trying to push that it's reasonable to believe that Jaleel being raised in this belief would find it necessary for his survival to kill his sister. Okay. Jaleel is on the stand and he's saying he had to restore his family's honor. The lawyer asked Jaleel if he had anything that he would change about what happened. The only thing he said was that he would change what Nafisa did to the family. Like if they're trying to get him off on insanity, they're doing a good job. Yeah. You know? Cabot is questioning Jaleel now. Her fucking brass balls are sending up sparks as she approaches the witness <laughs> and they drag on the courtroom floor. <laughs> So Cabot says, you killed your sister because she was with another man. And Jaleel said she had an arranged marriage and it wasn't her decision to be with anybody else. Barf. Jaleel left her half naked in the park to shame her the way that he felt she shamed the family. And then he used stones to try to kill her because that's the way they kill quote unquote whores where he's from. Jaleel doubles down on saying he's proud of what he did. Cabot asked him if, if he was proud of what he did, why did he run away? And she really, she like really laid into him about being a man. Yeah, she's like, a real man faces the consequences of his actions. Yeah, and Cabot kind of picks up on it that he's like looking at his dad and he's like, and, and then Cabot is like, did your father tell you what to do that night? He knew that it was wrong and didn't want to spend his life in an American prison. Yeah, and that's why he ran. And Jaleel's like, no, I just did it to restore my family honor. But he's like, keep side-eyeing his fucking dad. Mm -hmm. And she gets shit for badgering the witness and Jaleel regains his composure and says he was doing what was right. Yeah. Okay, so they're in Craigan's office. Everyone and their fucking mom is there. Mm -hmm. Cabot is worried that the jury is buying Jaleel's bullshit. Benson is thinking, she's like, we really need to like talk to Jaleel's mom, figure out how to like get in there. But everyone was like, she's out of bounds. She's not going to go against her husband or her son. Can I side note on Benson right yeah. now? She is doing with her hair what I thought I was going for in the early 2000s. But to my dismay, <laughs> I found out that pumpkin headed girls can't pull it off like this. Oh, please, you're beautiful. Your head is amazing. That's what was my name in high school. <laughs> so Toots suggests that if Nafisa's mom testified, she'll be sentencing herself. She'll, yeah, to death. she'll be sending her, her, sentencing herself to death with within her family at least. Cabot says if the jury thinks Jaleel is culture programmed to kill, he gets his insanity verdict. Mm -hmm. So they go back and forth about trying to press the mom, but then they decide they're ready to go hard and also protect her hard. Mm -hmm. But like Nafisa's mom did say that Jaleel and her were in a fight with her husband about Nafisa. So Olivia's like, we need to reach out to her one more time. Mm -hmm. Kragen says that they need to let Nafisa's mom know that she is protected, but they don't want to cross any weird like diplomatic lines. Yeah. So they're at the apartment. Benson, stable and toots. They're talking to the wife. She says she's already lost Nafisa and she does not want to lose Jaleel. So they're trying to convince her that Nafisa didn't lose her honor and that her husband had convinced Jaleel to do the killing, right? Yeah. They tell her they know that Nafisa was Saleh's ticket home because he had promised Nafisa to a Taliban and she blew it because she fell in love with a dude here. So it was a bullshit honor killing because Saleh was pissed about that. Right. Like, it wasn't about honor is what they're trying to push on her. Yeah. And then Toots kind of just like, we can protect you. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the music or this woman's painful, soulful eyes, but I'm ready to cry when she turns to Coco's husband. <laughs> <laughs> and says, I don't want your protection. I want my daughter. Mm. It might be the mom in me that was like, did you get emotional at that? I got really emotional at that. I don't even remember that part. So, yeah. Oh, 
<laughs> I don't want your protection. I want my daughter. Oh my god. Yeah. So they're in the Supreme Court <laughs> and fuck what? You just like sorry. You're like, I'm gonna give her a moment. Okay. Let's see. Hold on. They're in the Supreme Court. Nafisa's mom is fucking strong enough, fucking queen to testify, mm-hmm. which has got to be like insanely hard because she's she's like, I'm gonna get murdered. You know, yeah. spilling her guts. She is mm-hmm. fucking hurting. Yeah, she's saying that the night that Nafisa came home upset, her husband had asked Nafisa if she was still a virgin. Nafisa said no, and the dad hit her, and she fell, mm-hmm. and Jaleel tried to help her, and the dad said let her lie there like she lied with the American boyfriend. And the dad got a knife from the kitchen, and Jaleel begged him not to, yep. but the dad told Jaleel to kill her for their honor. He had to prove his manhood. Yeah, and then Jaleel did what he was told and killed her to prove his manhood, stabbed her, and then she was taken away. Oh. So the jury finds him guilty of second-degree murder, and Jaleel turns around, and his fucking dad is gone. Mm-hmm. Cabot knows what that means. She calls Craig in, and she's like, hey, so Celia hasn't missed a second of the trial until today, and he's not here for the verdict. Both parents were gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cut to our favorite doorman. This is the first doorman in SVU history to get more than one scene. Iconic. Oh my god. Yeah. I didn't even realize. When have we ever seen them go back to a doorman? Never. He's always a transition piece. And they're like, oh. this guy's too good. We need to hit him twice. So he goes to meet Stabes and Olivia. And he goes, he left last night in a limo. All that baggage looked like it was for good. The wife wasn't with him. Oh shit. Our hero doorman gets them into the apartment where they find her stabbed to death on the bed yeah executive producer dick wolf i don't like this episode it was well one it's hard as a person who was raised in a western culture for me i'm speaking for myself to wrap my mind around that stark of a difference in cultures Mm -hmm. so i read a ton about it to try to understand it more but it was still you know it's still like it's still not going to make sense to me you know what i mean yeah like even on paper i'm like yeah So honor killings were described in short in the episode, but we're going to go into what and where they are a little bit. But before we do that, we need to address our ignorance on the topic. Like as Anglo as shit Americans that grew up in a very different culture, we are not here to condemn any one culture's past. Like we all learn and change and grow culturally. I also just want to make it clear that this is a women's rights issue as well as a humanitarian issue. And we have very strong opinions on both of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to talking about it now and this subject in particular, I want to stay as journalistic as possible, like, and not fully go off. But please don't take that for apathy either. Killing women is fucked and people being property is fucked and there's no gray area yeah. as far as that goes. Yeah. And if we, like, in our ignorance, if we say something that is, like, weird and problematic or anything, like, please, please send us a message and correct us if if you feel like you want to, like. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know shit about shit. And like, I want to be respectful. I mean, don't do the woman thing where you like overly apologize for, I'm really dumb and pathetic and not worth speaking. (laughs) No, not not that. It's just like, I'm a fucking white lady from Wisconsin. I don't know shit. And like, I feel like you would agree with this, Tasha. Like, if I say something or do something that's like stupid white lady, like, Mm -hmm. I'm always open to somebody being like, hey, this is fucking weird. Like, this was weird. And this is why. And I'm like, oh my God, I did no like and then oh my god we do it with each other all the time yeah but that's kind of like hey white lady it's like oh thanks white lady (laughs) right yeah (laughs) all right here we go this was fucked up that's like the worst i'm not starting it like that (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, Human Rights Watch defines honor killings as follows. Honor crimes are acts of violence, usually murder, committed by male family members against female family members who are perceived to have brought dishonor upon the family. A woman can be targeted by her family for a variety of reasons, including refusing to enter into an arranged marriage, being the victim of sexual assault, seeking a divorce, uh, even if it's from an abusive husband, or committing adultery. The mere perception that a woman has acted in a manner to bring dishonor to the family is sufficient to trigger an attack. So a lot of times a family council will be held to decide on whether an honor killing is followed through on. Older victims are usually killed by their husbands and 44% of the time, some other member of the family too. Younger victims are killed by their family of origin 81% of the time. And of that, 53% were tortured before they died. Oh my God. Other honor crimes include acid attacks, abductions, beatings, and mutilations. Just one um, question quick. Does mm -hmm. this does it happen to men ever for anything? Yeah, it does. Not nearly as often because I read a lot of times that with honor killings, men can be responsible for building honor, but the only effect women have on family honor is to destroy it. Mm. So like the rates of this happening to women is much greater. And actually when it has been documented to have happened to men, it usually has to do with them being gay. Mm. But yeah, so it does happen to men, just not. Yeah, just like much less. And these numbers are really, there were so many numbers that are like asterisks. A lot of times these honor killings are reported as suicides or accidents. They don't even know like the full scope of the numbers. Mm. So the episode was pretty accurate in that the son was the one who had to carry out the killing. Most often minors in the family are required to do it and it's usually for legal reasons. And if they refuse, they face some terrible consequences themselves. In all aspects of maintaining honor, violence and fear are used to keep control. An Amnesty International statement says, the regime of honor is unforgiving. Women on whom suspicion has fallen are not allowed to defend themselves and family members have no socially acceptable alternative but to remove the stain on their honor by attacking the woman. Oh, so I read this 1995 LA Times article and a quote that I pulled from it um, was from this lawyer in Nablus, which is like north of Jerusalem. Uh, he was a district court judge for 15 years, Azmi Tangier. He said this about honor killings. Murder is a bad and horrible thing. I am, of course, opposed to murder, but also in my opinion, what is more important is moral stability in a society. Religion, culture, tradition calls for this. So that's just like a little bit of what's behind. That's a lawyer. Honor killing. That's, that's uh, a lawyer that said that. A lawyer who was a district court judge. Okay. I mean, he's a lawyer or he he practiced law over there. And this was in 1995. I felt like that quote lent a lot to like the way that it's viewed. Maintaining a moral stability is huge to the point of like murder is not the worst thing. Right. Okay. So Pakistan has the highest number of documented and estimated honor killings per capita of any country in the world. About one fifth of the world's honor killings are performed in Pakistan. The focus there being the perception of the community versus any actual solid evidence. So because I found this story that ended up being in Pakistan and not Afghanistan, I felt like I should reach out to a friend of ours, Saqib. Mm -hmm. He's from Pakistan and I wanted to make sure my information was accurate as well as get a perspective from him since he knows more about it. Um, I'm really glad I did because I learned like a ton. I was like, hey buddy, could you maybe like fill in some of these gaps here? And he's like, sure, what do you want to know? <laughs> 
Yeah. And just like sending me articles and then explaining the perspective of people. And I mean, stuff that I, I didn't find on my own that totally changed. That's why I don't want to speak like I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I learned just from asking him some of the stuff. So I quote him a lot throughout here. Okay, so I read that the laws surrounding honor killings were ancient tools for lineage survival and control, which is true in some areas. But here's what Saqib said about Pakistan specifically. And because we're talking about Pakistan specifically, like I want to make this very transparent and clear. So he says, all these laws were created under the nemesis of the Sharia law movement during the 1980s. The 1980s being the time when fighting on jihad against the Russians in Afghanistan was actually cool and funded by Saudis and Americans. Pakistan was generally a very progressive society before that. Mm -hmm. Before, we were more believers in the Sufi Barelvi belief system. This was much more chilled out. In fact, we were on the hippie trail during the 1960s and 70s. The Wahhabi system is the one from Saudi Arabia, which came in during the 80s. Strict adherence to rules, oppression of women and minorities, which led to laws like this. During this time was also the introduction of laws like women's testimony only counts for half of an evidence witness or getting only half of a portion of inheritance. Wahhabi rules have no tolerance for any non-compliance of minorities or women. In fact, Zia Abhad basically had a voting slogan, if you want Sharia law, vote for me. Uh, That was in 1981, I think. Even then, after martial law was lifted after Zia's death, we voted one of the first women prime ministers in the late 1980s. I think it was 1988. So that was what Saqib said about all of this, kind of summing up like where it came from to Mm. be in Pakistan. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Does it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. I tried to cut it down a lot because he gave me so much information, like a big old history lesson. Is so he, he contributes more. Did what? he say it was okay to like use his name and stuff? I 100% asked him. Of course I did. Yeah. No, I just didn't know. If, I didn't know if you were going to be cutting that out or anything. I was just wondering. Oh, no. I'm not like Sakib. Boop. He lives in <laughs> Boop. But with his wife, Nicole, two children. <laughs> Their names are. Yeah. Um. No, I, I asked if I could quote him and he said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, So he contributes a lot more throughout the story, but that alone really filled in some gaps for me. Okay. All right. This leads us to the story of Pakistan's Kim Kardashian. That's what they called her in the press. Fauzia Azim was born on March 1st, 1990. She grew up in Shah Siddar Din, a town and union council in Punjab, Pakistan. She was one of nine kids, six boys and three girls. Her parents Anwar and Muhammad struggled to make ends meet as small farmers. Early on, Fauzia found that she loved modeling, acting, and singing, and she eventually started using a stage name, Kandil Baloch. So I'm just gonna call her that for continuity's sake. Okay. Also because it's what she went by like her entire adult life. So in 2008, when she was 17, Kandil was married to her mother's cousin, Ashik Hussein. Her husband beat and tortured her until she fled to Karachi. So these are her accounts. These things are denied by some family, but that's not really the main point of it. She took out, she's like, I'm not dealing with this shit. In 2013, Kandil auditioned for Pakistan Idol. Her audition went viral and turned her into an internet celebrity. And I went back and found her audition on YouTube. Mm-hmm. If you go to our show notes on svupod.com, I'm going to have a link to it. But she is this adorable little thing that shows up in this flowy green top and bright pink leggings and platform stiletto pumps. So there was only a little English sprinkled in here and there, but there were a lot of cutaways to the shoes. So I was like, oh, this is a big deal. She's, I mean, like early 2000s Pam Anderson, like, platform. I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the panel was not impressed with her singing and she was escorted out like begging and crying, but people loved her. Like I thought I was going to get blown away by this amazing singer and the whole panel sitting there like, "Mm -mm, honey, no. (laughs) Bye. We love your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) 
And she was like crying and she's like, come on, you know, but she went viral for some reason. She developed this. Well, she was already modeling and stuff, too. Mm -hmm. So um, but she developed this huge social media presence with her photos and videos. And she had catchphrases go viral and had Pakistani young people dub smashing her and shit. Mm -hmm. She was always compared to Kim Kardashian. But Kandil was bigger than that because she went against the norms of society that she was living in. Yeah. By 2014, she was regularly appearing on Pakistani talk shows. By 2016, she was mostly appearing on talk shows to debate religious scholars on the controversy that was her quote-unquote Western lifestyle. Whoa. Her position in the public eye grew and Kandil used this as an opportunity to talk about women's position in Pakistan society. When I asked Saqib about her, like the first thing I did, I was like, hey, like what can you say about Kandil Baloch? And his quote is like fucking perfect. He goes, Kandil was like Harvey Milk and Madonna in one package living in Alabama. Totally <laughs> provocative and totally in your face and very ballsy. And I was like, Alabama. And he goes, that's so that Americans can like get it. <laughs> so something she said on June 14th of 2016, as women, we must stand up for ourselves. As women, we must stand up for each other. As women, we must stand. Mm. Okay, so there's this dude, Mufti Abdul Kawi, that we have to get to know before we can move forward with Kandil's story. Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> He's a religious cleric from Punjab. I read a little about the role of a cleric, and it's basically a clergy member, but also as part of the government. Words that are used to describe his position are mullah, imam. There's a lot of different words that describe his title, I guess. Mm -hmm. So he was a part of the Tariq A. and Saf political party. Um, it's shorthanded the PTI. But at one point, he was even the president of religious affairs of the PTI. Okay. So he's this like big political deal and big religious deal. Kandil and Mufti first met on a political talk show. He did this a lot with models to talk about moral issues. They were debating opposing sides. But in the conversation, Mufti had said something about them getting the opportunity to meet. And Kandil said she would be honored to. Cut to Kandil taking video that she later posts on Facebook. It's June 20th in Karachi. She's in a hotel room, like big suite with lots of space and she's like guess who I'm hanging out with and she pans over she's always got like a what is that extension thing that people put on their phones a selfie stick Oh, yeah. She pans over and there sits Mufti Kawi in a chair just like in this hotel room. And the hang seems pretty casual, like she's using it for content. Mm -hmm. She's sitting on the arm of the chair that he's in, telling him that he's the best, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, you're so great, you know, or whatever. Uh, she puts his hat on and takes a selfie with him. Like if we're to see this just as like Western people, this interaction sounds like NBD, you know, mm -hmm. to the contrary. Oh, God. It was a fucking scandal. Yeah. So people were appalled by the way that she behaved with him, which I need to remind you that her whole public persona was hypersexual and provocative. So this video was definitely not that, but the implications mm -hmm. were huge. Like, oh, he's in her hotel room and they're sitting on the same chair and they're like that. Kind yeah, of it stuff. was just yeah. like they kept saying, like, this is not how one behaves with a religious cleric. But they didn't say anything about his actions. Like mm -mm. I saw an interview with him after. Oh. I'm, I'm posting that whole video too because like you need to go back and watch this video. Anyway, I'm not like, we'll get there. But so the media just like ran with this and this meeting was splashed across every front page and every TV in the country. Mufti did lose his position, mm -hmm. but here's the big turning point. This is all being super sensationalized in the press and throughout this, Kandil's 
passport was made public. And she was basically doxxed by this media source. Until this point, she was a mysterious internet celebrity named Kandio Baloch. Now the whole country knows that she was Fauzia Azim. Oh, God. With that, they also knew that she was from a poor conservative part of the country. And then that connected her to her family. Her dad's name was on her passport. Oh, my God. In July of 2016, just days after the meeting with Mufti, fearing for her life, Kandil sought protection from the country. She told the Express Tribune, quote, I am getting life-threatening phone calls from Mufti Abdul Kawi. My life is constantly in danger, and it is the duty of the government to protect my life and to provide me with security. Like, she did not give a fuck and spilled all the tea about the meeting. Mm -hmm. This is what she said. I have unveiled a man who is leading the people toward ignorance in the name of Islam. I will continue to unveil this hypocrite face of religious clerics who are defaming our religion and country. She claimed that at this meeting, Mufti Kawi had asked about her choice of cigarette and drink, which led her to think that, quote, he would trap her. And she says, this is why I took selfies with Mufti. What do, what do you mean trap her? Into getting pictures with her smoking and drinking? I never got full clarity on that, but I think maybe like to get her to do things she wasn't supposed to um, and maybe get her in trouble because like they were had very opposing views. But there's also st- like he does not have a good reputation with women and how he behaves. Mm-hmm. And so she was catching some of that vibe. And the reason I say he doesn't have this good reputation is from another woman's, a journalist's perspective. And then her interaction with the head officer on this case, it's a whole thing. Like the way the women talk about him is different Mm -hmm. than how he's presented otherwise. This is so hard to do. Like, because I don't want to disrespect like big religious people either. And like, I don't know. I know you don't want to. I'm fine with that, but we shouldn't. I know you we are. shouldn't. We shouldn't be fa- like, I want to respect other people's. I'm not saying to like be like, me, he's great. But like, yeah. Yeah. She also said that Mufti had said, quote, you must forget Imran Khan as he is 65 years old and live with me. I am only 50 years old. We will not make public our nuptial agreement. Okay, so Imran Khan is a famous cricketer and politician who she had asked Mufti to set up a date with him for her. This is not the only account that I've read where he was a behind the scenes creep. Mm -hmm. Plus, I tend to lean into believing women. So, you know, she had posted this thing. She had posted this like video of like telling Imran Khan that she wanted to marry him and da da da, whatever. So, that was the content of the conversation of him being like, oh, forget about that guy. I'm only 50. <laughs> You know. <laughs> so on July 15th, 2016, Kandil was drugged and asphyxiated by her brother, M. Wasim, while she was asleep. Her father reported her death. When her body was found, she had been dead between 15 and 36 hours. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. She asked the government for protection and they didn't do anything or no? No. I mean, yeah, but like, so she went back home? Yeah, she went back home and she was staying at her parents'. Oh my God! You like you'll oh get more God. into understanding the most dangerous place. No, after not in her experience. So it was first reported as a shooting, but when examined, the marks on her body showed that her mouth and nose had been sealed shut to prevent her from breathing. When Wasim was arrested the next night, he confessed and said, "Quote: I gave her sleeping pills and strangled her. She was bringing disrepute to our family's honor, and I could not tolerate it any further. I killed her around 11:30 p.m. on Friday night when everyone else had gone to bed. My brother is not involved in the murder." He went on to say, girls are born only to stay at home and to bring honor to the family by following family traditions, 
but Candil had never done that. So four mm -hmm. dudes were arrested for Candil's murder. Her brother and her cousin were the ones who committed the murder. The person who drove the car is related to Mufti Kawi, so that made him a person of interest. Mm -hmm. So I watched an interview with him with this badass journalist, Hani Taha, who really challenged him. So at one point in the interview, she said, you are being investigated and the family says it's your fault. Why? And he goes, <laughs> anyone who wants to make allegations against the clergy they should remember what happened to Kandil. <gasps> Got it. Yeah. Whoa. So even though there were a lot of side eyes in Mufti's direction, he was never formally charged with anything. The lead investigator was Atia Joffrey, and she had said this to this, this same journalist. In Honor Killing, it's just the women. I've never understood Honor, and it is always on the woman. Like, she's an Olivia Benson-level badass. This cop, mm -hmm. you got to watch this little, it's like a 20-minute little doc about Kandil. So are Honor Killings more, are they considered more like something that happens in like rural type um, places because like here there's like a lady cop running around and she's not I know getting honor killed so is it more just like that's why I went to Sakib and asked him about all this stuff he's like that stuff is starting to be like more and more pushed out because it came in with a certain type of government like the Taliban that came in and like took over government he sent me so much fucking information dude Mm -hmm. Here, let me tell you this. This is from Sakib. Okay. Okay. The Muftis and Mullahs drove a lot of power from madrasas, which are religious schools, in the local community, especially in poor towns and cities because they were effectively the head of these schools. And as the funding for public education was limited, especially during the 1980s, being put to good use to buy fighter jets, these poor towns relied a lot more for education on the madrasas. So yes, the short answer is yes. The people in small towns and poor communities, this is where their education is coming from, from these like super conservative religious leaders, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like how we're like, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good. I think that's why he referenced um, Condil being like Harvey Milk and Mad Madonna if they were in Alabama. Like that's the whole thing is you can't put a blanket over Pakistan and be like, this is how they are there. You know, there's laws on the mm -hmm. books that people that are from there think are super fucked up just like here, you know, just like mm -hmm. anywhere. So initially after her murder, based on the law, Kandil's dad had the power to pardon her brother because at the time the law said that anyone convicted of an honor killing could be released if forgiven by the family. Kandil's father is quoted as to saying, Quote, my daughter was brave and I will not forget or forgive her brutal murder. He was not having any of this shit. And he said he would never. Oh, oh the dad. The dad. Her dad the really dad, yeah. didn't know? Her dad had no part of it. He oh said that he God. would never forgive his son. And in fact, in an interview, he said he wanted his son and his nephew to get the death penalty. Holy shit. Okay, cool. All the pressure went on to her dad like, hey, are you going to pardon your son? And he's like, fuck no. She gave us everything. Like she did all of this. We didn't judge her lifestyle. She was good to us. And, she, you know, he had nothing but good things to say about her and her parents were just mm. oh her well, mom that's why her parents place was like a safe place her parents weren't like because yeah because she was supported by her family and up until this point the rest of her family supposedly didn't have an issue with anything that she did it didn't cause dishonor to anyone in their perception until people knew that guy. she was attached to her family if it wasn't for that media source who put out her passport like people found out who she was her real name so what the fuck mufti and then like do you think mufti got to the brother and shit that that is all involved. that is all sketch 
catch. Like yeah. he, Mufti never got in any trouble or anything. Because like, why would this like huge cleric be fucking involved in like the get getaway car and stuff of mm-hmm. the small family? Oh, oh, because yeah, he's pissed at her. Oh God. Oh. Mm-hmm. So honor killings were officially outlawed in Pakistan in 2004, but cultural norms and the legal loopholes of family forgiveness made the honor killings continue. So like that was mm. the legal loophole. But the out- was the dad being able to forgive? Yeah, or pardon people. So it okay. it made it. It was kind of like yeah, it's murder, but like we're cool, right? Like there's, I mean, there was still that loophole of a dad being able to do that or the family being able to do that. I think mm-hmm. the dad is the one who had the most power. That's what I kept seeing. And so like what I'm assuming, probably just like the patriarch of the family made that decision. Mm-hmm. Three months after Kandil's death, Pakistan passed the anti-honor killings bill, which closed the loophole that effectively allowed an honor killing victim's family to pardon the perpetrator. So the outrage and uproar of Kandil's death caused that bill to get on the radar of parliament because it had already sat untouched for over a year before this. But it it was finally passed through. Okay. Then in September of 2019, Kandil's brother, Wasim, received a sentence of life in prison. Is this why a lot of honor killings now are like, oh, it was an accident or a suicide or whatever, so that, because there's not that loophole anymore, so they can't own it. Well, this and then is get only pardoned. in Pakistan. This is, on, this is not like, a, you know, this is. No, I mean, I mean, like there. I mean, yeah. Like if somebody's going to pull an honor killing now, there is no longer that loophole. So does it make sense that it would be reported as something different? Probably. But like, I can't say that for sure because I did not um, like read that and wasn't informed about that. Hmm. But yeah, that's it. That's Kandil's story. So she can, so even though she had to die, she contributed a lot. To changing that law. Yeah. Whoa, dude. Unfortunately. I don't think I knew about this. Mm. Well, thanks, Sakab. Thanks, Sakab. Say hi to Nikki. Yeah. Hi, Nikki. (laughs) Okay. Uh, follow us on all social media at SVU Pod. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Five stars. Tell me I'm pretty. <laughs> You're pretty. Not you. I was oh, the other people. Like, okay. <laughs> Check out hashtag little bit loud. You might find some cool startup shit. If you're a small self start pod, use the hashtag little bit loud. Let's bring it together. Mm-hmm. We got merch. Go to svupod.com and buy a cute beanie with our SVU pod logo on it or a limited time big cat nudes t-shirt just to let everybody out of the country know Abby's got that shit together because we can ship internationally now. Aww. Oh my God. Next week is season two, episode three, Closure Part Two. Oh God. I just got goosebumps because I know what's coming, and so do you. I do. All right. All right. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Do you know how terribly annoying someone has to be for me to call them annoying? Like, I understand who I am. I thought that maybe it was like a. A Nike shirt that said, like, instead of just do it, it said, I did it. And then I was like, oh, that's so ironic. You know, that's where my head went. I guarantee somebody has made, like, a Nike ad with OJ Simpson and that line. Oh, yeah. I want one that has this Nike swish and it's like, okay, okay, I fucking did it. (laughs) (laughs) You should wear that when you go mushroom hunting. Oh, my God, shut up. You're such an older dude. (laughs) With my clip-on sunglasses, I am. (laughs) 